Welcome back, everybody. I'm Olivia, and this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, the podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. Uh, Before we get to this week's episode, in what we are hoping is some good news, uh, going back to the previous episode, talking about the mass coral bleaching and death event in Florida with their hot tub temperature waters, where a... um, Or the good news is that there were some of the corals that are bleached were observed spawning. And this does provide a little sparkle of hope because, of course, spawning coral provides um, a little bit of hope that we'll get some new baby corals next year. But reproduction is also pretty energy intensive. So this could very well represent a last-ditch effort, so to say, a bit of a final attempt to get the next generation of corals out there before this coral before this current one just dies. At the end of the day, we'll just have to see what happens. The coral reefs around the, Flo- the Florida Keys are in very bad shape, and there's a lot of discussion going on about what recovery would look like if, even if meaningful intervention is possible uh, without having any action to prevent the even more severe effects from climate change. So, of course, people are doing what they can, but... If the reef is dead, um, there's only so much we can do. Uh, Corals aside, though, this week we are actually going to be on land and will be a little bit less doom and gloom than last week. And this is another topic that I had been meaning to cover for, I don't know, maybe about a year or so now, and is a fairly recent thing that I learned about myself in the last couple of years. Um, But it kept getting bumped back in the schedule. Other stuff kept getting, like, kept popping up. Took a pretty long break at the end of the year last year, but that's okay. Here we are. Uh, This year feels a little bit spider heavy, but instead of another installation of things that spiders eat, today we're talking about spider camouflage. And apparently, the goldenrod crab spider has the ability to change color, to blend in. The goldenrod crab spider has a couple of common names, such as the flower spider, flower crab spider, and smooth flower crab spider. In North America, at least, though, the goldenrod crab spider is the most commonly used of the common names. And for consistency's sake, the scientific name of this guy is Misumena Basia. This, this little guy is in the crab family, uh, crab spider family of spiders, the Thomisidae which has more than 2,000 species of spiders around the world. This particular species is found in temperate climates around the world, so North America, Europe, and even some into Asia. Um, It's considered to have a whole Arctic distribution, so that really just means all of the temperate areas around the world. So, if you're familiar with the idea of animals evolving to be crabs, carcinization, Technically speaking, this is not an instance of carcinization. Officially, the definition of carcinization is that it's a crustacean that evolves into a crab shape, starting from something that isn't crab-shaped. Goldenrod crab spider definitely 100% still looks like a spider. Uh, The characteristics that that give the crab spiders the name crab spider are mostly behavioral adaptations. Their body shape does look a little bit crabby, but it's mostly behavioral. One is that they can move in all directions. Most spiders can only move forwards and maybe backwards, 
But crab spiders can also move from side to side, so they scuttle kind of like a crab can scuttle. The other is that with crab spiders, their first two front legs tend to be longer, and they hold them at the ready, so then it kind of gives them the appearance of a crab just waiting to grab prey, instead of like how spiders might normally just have their legs reasonably evenly spaced apart. They hold their front two ready, so then it kind of gives them, again, it gives them a little bit of a crabby posture. Overall, you look at them and it's like, yes, that's a spider. You don't look at them and go, wow, that might be a crab. So I don't think this technically applies or this technically would be an event of carcinization, but there are quite a few things that have ended up being crab-shaped that we consider crabs that are not technically like true crabs. Uh, The hermit crabs are one of them. So sometime we'll just have an episode to talk about carcinization and that's just going to be a fun time. So with the goldenrod crab spider, where their camouflage skills come into play is both in predator defense and prey capture. Unlike a lot of spiders we've talked about in the past, um, especially fairly recently with the um, snakes eating spiders, or I'm sorry, spiders eating snakes, which I don't know, whichever way you want to say it, I guess it works depending on where you put the emphasis. Uh, They do still, or goldenrod spiders don't spin webs. They do still make spider silk because they are spiders. In order to be a spider, you have to make silk in some way, shape, or form at some point in your life. Um, But they use their silk instead of to spin webs. They use them more as a safety feature if they fall from a flower or to help hold on to their eggs, assist with prey capture. And they also use their silk to leave a bit of a trail to help males find the females. Because the females tend to stay pretty stationary on one or a few flowers. They kind of just hang out and wait for food. And it ends up being the role of the male spiders to find their female companions. And then they get to hope for their best that they don't get eaten in the process. Goldenrod spiders are ambush predators. So they lie in wait for their prey on different flowers. Some of their flowers include, of course, the goldenrod which if you don't live where goldenrod happens, um, it's a more of a meadowy flower. Um, It's a yellow flower that blooms kind of uh, late summer time of the year. But they have also been found on sunflowers, daisies, milkweed, trillium, red clover, buttercups, typically flowers found in meadows, wetlands, and clearings. And as far as I could tell from my research, Pretty much if it's not a flower that lives only in forests, um, if it's a flower that exists in literally any other habitat other than forested, then you might find a goldenrod crab spider there. Since they live on flowers, uh, their prey does unfortunately include your pollinators. So really anything that comes to a flower, you'll have your butterflies, your bees, flies, beetles, hemipterins, which are considered the group of true bugs, like your leaf bugs and your stink bugs, as well as small wasps, which emphasis on small wasps because larger wasps would actually be included in their list of predators. So to catch their prey as they sit on these flowers, they need to be able to blend in. Because if you were, I don't know, say a butterfly or a bee, You're going to land on a flower, and as you're landing on the flower, you're like, oh no, that flower has something that could eat me on it. Then you probably wouldn't go to that flower, the spider wouldn't get lunch, 
and you would go on to live another day. So as the predator, you don't want to be seen. So normally a goldenrod spider is white, but with pigments that they have to produce, they have the ability to turn yellow. And this color changing ability is very different from like cuttlefish and octopus. And we talked about their camouflaging skills and color changing skills back in episode 30. So the cuttlefish um, and really any of the color changing cephalopods can change colors instantly. But with the goldenrod crab spider, it takes a few days to change color because they actually have to produce the pigments. In cuttlefish, their color changes are more physical. So in the spark notes version with cuttlefish, they have different layers of skin cells and each of those have different pigments. So to change colors, they contract different cells in different patterns to change color and pattern. So this allows for a speedy quick color change. The goldenrod spiders, like I said, they have to actually produce the pigment when they want to change color. And if they want to change back, they have to degrade the pigment. So those sorts of changes take a little bit more time than just a little muscle contraction. Like the cuttlefish though, goldenrod spiders also change colors based off of their environment. If a spider is on a white flower, they'll tend to stay white. But if they're on a yellow flower, or potentially like a pink flower, some other color, then they will change color to yellow over a series of days. And it takes them about five to six days, so about a week in order to accrue enough of the uh, yellow pigment in order to change. So the white color itself would technically be a physical color that's not really any sort of pigmentation involved in that. It's just the, it's really just the way the spider is. So the um, outer cell layer of the goldenrod spider is transparent. So then what we're seeing is white due to the way light reflects off of some non-pigment chemicals, in this case, mostly guanine, it looks like, that exist in the spider. So as I said, they don't store the yellow pigment to have it at the ready. So if they are wandering around, they find themselves on a yellow flower, that's where they decide to stay they would need to produce that pigment. There are a couple of different pigments that they produce to form the yellow color. And if you happen to be into the different pigment groups and you are familiar with them, these yellow pigments are in the omochrome group of pigments. So once we have produced our yellow, we have taken five to six days to produce it. We have our omochromes, we're nice yellow color spider. If this little spider does wanders around and decides to change flowers again, they do have the ability to change back from uh, back to white from yellow, but it takes about twice as long to get rid of the yellow pigments. And this is anywhere from 10 to 25 days to change back to white. And this is probably because again, they don't store the pigments anywhere. So if they decide to no longer be white, they have to one, stop produce the pigment, and to physically remove the yellow pigments from their system. None of the papers I read uh, got into the exact specifics about how breaking it down and getting out of the system works in any more detail than that they excrete the pigment. So I figure that means that they essentially just process the pigments, break them down, and then poop them out. There really aren't too many other places for it to go since this is an excretion 
if the paper said secretion, then that would be like if they just oozed it out of the body, just kind of like sweating it out. But ex excretions are typically your solid or your liquid wastes, and bugs are pretty efficient in including both of those in one. So I guess that's your bug poop fact for the day. So sometimes goldenrod spiders will be on flowers that aren't white or yellow. So sometimes you might see a white goldenrod spider on a pink flower. To us, this spider is going to look pretty obvious, but to the buggy predators of a spider at least, they'll still be pretty well hidden. Humans have blue, red, and green cone photoreceptors in our eyes, so this allows us to also see the various shades of red. However, arthropods, so these are things with a hard exoskeleton, the phylum that bugs exist in it, we, where we currently are, uh, they don't have red photoreceptors, usually at least. What they can see though, they do have photoreceptors for UV light, blue light, and green light, so shifted to a little bit more of the higher energy wavelengths of light. So when they look at a pink flower with a goldenrod spider on it, what we think that they would typically see is just a dark flower with a dark spider on it, allowing the spider to be properly camouflaged against a large section of its typical predators, even if that camouflage doesn't work for our color vision abilities. And that's pretty wild to me that even when we're sitting here we're wondering why some critters' camouflage isn't working. For other animals with different vision abilities, that critter might still be perfectly well blended in. And to just imagine a world where UV, like seeing UV light is also a possibility. And I think if you can see UV, then all of the animals that glow in the dark, you might be able to see all of that fluorescence. And that would just be a wild world to live in. And it's cool that we get to see pink and all of the vision and all of like what we can see as visible light, but also I think we got a little bit gypped in not being able to see UV light. Uh, interestingly, goldenrod spiders can also be different colors, depending on the things it has eaten. So for some of the other colors that goldenrod spiders have been observed being include pink, green, brown, orange, and then we can have any of those colors in various patterns with white, including yellow, so the pigmentation normally produces in kind of different patterns with white. And I didn't see what, they didn't describe what they meant by that in some of the papers, but with each of these different colors, I'll try to find some fun, like, different colors of the goldenrod spiders and post them on the social medias so that you all can see what the goldenrod spiders look like. I think they're pretty nifty. Uh, so these diet-induced changes are often more obvious in the juvenile stages of the spider's life. Based off of a study in 2000, these diet-induced changes are essentially dose-dependent. So the more pigment in the spider's body, the stronger the color change will be. And juvenile spiders, since they are smaller than full-grown adults, it takes uh, less or fewer, less ingested pigments for them to change colors than for an adult spider. So pretty much there's just less body to have to distribute the pigment through, so you just don't need as much pigment to reach the point where it's going to be visible through the entire body. And in this particular study, interestingly, they never observed um, adult females as changing colors from pigments obtained in food, which would make sense, right? 
since an adult female spider is more likely than not going to be around the maximum size for these spiders. In the spider world, females tend to be the largest. So this doesn't necessarily mean that it's impossible for an adult female to change colors. So some of these fancy pinks and browns and whatever. Um, the single researcher in this study, Schmelhofer, just didn't observe any adult females with food-related color changes during the extent of this study. So what are some of the foods that cause some of these color changes? I was honestly really hoping to find some article, webpage, or study, whatever, that had just a list of what prey items cause which color changes, but alas, no such luck. So here we are, we are going to make the list of the things that I could find, because a couple of different articles did each list one or two different things, so we're going to have a small compilation. One of the most well-known of the links is with red-eyed Drosophila. Drosophila flies are commonly known as fruit flies, and if you've ever done any sort of or taken any sort of like genetics classes in college or in the past done some genetics work, then you're familiar with Drosophila melanogaster. That's the one commonly used in uh, most genetic research. But Drosophila in general is just a group of fruit flies. And if you look a tad closely at the fruit flies that may or may not be in your house, you'll likely notice that most of them have red eyes. The pigment that causes red eyes, when eaten by a young goldenrod spider in particular, can cause that spider to turn a very lovely shade of pink. Since this is dose-dependent, the color is deeper the more fruit flies the spider eats. And if you have a smaller spider, you may only need two fruit flies a day to have a nice pink or nice deep pink color. However, if uh, only one fruit fly may only give a pale pink spider. But uh, nonetheless, more fruit flies equals a deeper pink. And after that initial consumption of the fruit fly, if no more fruit flies are eaten or they're not eating enough to maintain that nice pink color, then that pink will fade by the end of the week. So it does still take a little bit of time for the pink, but they do seem to be able to hold on to it quite nicely. Um, also in that 2000 study though, um, a goldenrod spider was observed eating an unspecified green hemipterin, so probably some kind of green stink bug. There are plenty of stink bugs with a very lovely green color. And as a result, that turned the spider a nice bright green. Now the green did not linger as long as the red color, maybe because the spiders ate more fruit flies. I don't know, maybe the green isn't just a very easy to hold on to pigment. But either way, for whatever the reason, the green just didn't linger very long and this spider faded back to white after only a couple of days. Um, other records have indicated that some moth larvae can also turn the spider green for a period of time, but that one didn't come with a time frame, so there's a chance that could also be a couple of days or maybe as long as a week. I don't know. For the brown color, I can't find where I wrote it in my notes, but I do remember reading in one of the articles I read that if a mosquito had recently eaten a blood meal and then it gets eaten by a goldenrod spider, then that spider can turn brown, and that's because of the way that blood degrades and those pigments and how all that works. So that one feels a little bit less cute than just straight up stealing pigments from their food, but that's mostly just because, you know, there's a little bit of blood involved. 
And for a kind of anticlimactic conclusion, that is what I have for you today. There are only a few spider species that we know of that can change color, so now as we reach the end of the episode, we can revel in the fact or we can revel in the goldenrod spider's uniqueness. One source said that only two other spiders, um, also in the crab spider family, can change color. Another said as many as 25% of the crab spiders. But still, if it's only about 500 spider species out of the 50,000 plus of the spiders out there, that is still a pretty small drop in a pretty good sized bucket. Um, so overall, this isn't a thing that most spiders can do. And again, if you want to learn a little bit more about camouflage, we covered it a little deeper and a little differently when we were talking about cuttlefish, go check out that episode. We were talking all about cuttlefish and cephalopod camouflage in episode 30. So after you're done with this episode, take a listen to that and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and anyone and know that there's anyone in your life that needs to have more fun spider facts because this one was a pretty fun spider fact. Um, And we all know everybody can use more fun spider facts. So share the podcast with your friends. They can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podbean, really wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of future episodes. And one other way to support the podcast is to leave a review. You can do that on Spotify. Just click the little star button and leave a nice little five-star review. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, however we're calling the Apple products of today. Um, And that'll help more people find the podcast. So if you are on Facebook or Instagram, be sure to give us a follow at Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky on Facebook and Quirky Creepy Freaky Pod on Instagram to get all the pictures and updates on the podcast. This one in particular, if you want to see some goldenrod spiders, I'm going to try to hunt down um, some different pictures of different colored spiders so we can get try to get the array of color changes. The articles I read weren't all super helpful. Sometimes they just have pictures in there of the different colors of what they're looking at, but... Uh, These ones, a lot of these ones didn't. Really just the white and the yellow. But anyways, uh, get on the social medias to see those pictures. And thank you to my sister, Kaylee Streit, for creating the theme music for my podcast. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time.